right. Well, guys, welcome to, uh, well, I forgot the number of the episode. This is Cursed with Good Ideas. It has become... 19? Maybe 19, yeah. So it's episode 19. I'll fix it in a post. So today we have... Uh, Dylan Levy King. Welcome. Yes, sir. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for having oh, me. Thank you for uh, for having making time and joining us. And uh, I don't know how to introduce you. I guess translator and researcher or uh, writer. Yeah, that's good. Translator and and writer, researcher, independent researcher. I guess is is good. Yeah, that, yeah. That's, there's not much else to say. Yeah, that's good. You were uh, we were before the episode. You were talking about academia and being in and out and looking in and out. And I remember there was a period where I had no academic job and then. There was the endless uh, dilemma how to refer to myself. So I had to, like in some conferences and, and, and writings, I had to write like independent researcher and it always felt weird because I was like, what, yeah. independent from who? But uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> And and that independent researcher label is often adopted by by cranks, like, yeah. by like people who are researching enemy oh, yeah. uh, of of energy wave attacks on yeah. on September 11th or something. So I'm always like, oh, I hope people uh, think that I'm somewhat serious and and not a crank. No, I I think it does make sense because I mean, it's, I also thought about unemployed researcher or something, or like, but freelance mm-hmm. sounds like you're mm-hmm. doing corporate stuff uh, independent mm-hmm. has become kind of like geopolitics like if you do geopolitics it's kind of suspicious but um but your work is really good and i actually don't know much about it because i feel like i followed you on twitter for a long time i don't know dino as well probably like we shared mm-hmm. your tweets with each other for a long time um yeah so i know like bits and pieces um and i always actually I always like puzzled by trying to uh, nail down what you do because i know you translated a bunch of uh stuff from Chinese, uh, Chinese literature, but then yeah, for sure. you also write about North Korean uh, environmentalism, environmentalism. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and Japan, because you live in Japan. Um, yeah. And uh, so I don't know, maybe like to give uh, listeners an idea of what uh, your tra- sure. trajectory, have we been in China at the same time? Uh, have we crossed paths? And when did you move there? I read you lived in Guangzhou for a while. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, I I went, I, I did a major in Chinese okay. undergraduate at, at um, University of British Columbia in Canada. Cool. And during that time, I was also, I went to Zhejiang University, Nanjing University, doing language programs and various exchange things. So basically 2007 to 2014. Oh, wow. I lived in China. Cool. For the most part, I was living in places in China that are not particularly prestigious or associated with like a, like an, you know, uh, a hip uh, expatriate vibe. I was sort of always in places like Guangzhou or, or Dalian or Datong. So I always looked with envy on people who were living in Beijing or Shanghai or even Nanjing at that time. Yeah, I was mostly but, like Beijing and Shanghai. So I missed that uh, more peripheral vibe. Datong sounds cool. Datong is very cool. That Datong is where I, you know, the, the kind of infamous story attached to, to myself is, is where I spent a couple months in a detention facility um, right on the edge of, you know, Inner Mongolia. But Wow. Anyways, do, do you want to um, do you want to say oh, that infamous here. story or oh hey? Uh, anyway, I, I think everybody's heard that story. I don't know. Um, yeah, it's no, a, it's a no, dull story. We haven't talked about it. No, no, I've never, I never heard of it. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, let's. Okay. Well, I mean, it's sort of it's sort of overselling it. Just even saying the premise of the story, even saying what happened. Um, it was just a a, a beef with a. The local public security bureau was trying to extort my employer at that time, who was sort of a typical uh, Shanxi coal boss, 
who I had met through a friend of a friend who I was sort of working for. And just a failure to register with the local public security bureau sat me in a, in a Julio Suo, in a detention facility for a couple months. This is like 2013, 2014. And basically just cooled my heels there until my until my visa expired. It was a very, very good experience. Um, most of the people locked up there were petitioners because Datong at that time was basically decimating the old city to put up a, uh, a new city wall. They were just bulldozing everything. And so a number of people were picked up in Beijing petitioning and then were basically left to sit in a detention facility. So it was very nice meeting those gentlemen and I was treated very well. The food was wonderful. Apart from it being very cold and very dull, it was a, it was a good experience. And after that, I was allowed to go my own way. There was no problem applying for a visa for China again because the detention was completely extrajudicial, so there was no issue. That's that's the story. <laughs> you had to leave after, but then you could get back in. Yeah, because there, it was not something that, that the local PSB had coordinated with any with with probably even their their own superiors. It was just an extortion effort against this local Shanxi coal boss that I was that I happened to be associated with. And once my visa expired, I I was told to leave the country, and right. I did, and I could go right back in. Okay, cool. <laughs> Well, I, I didn't. So know. the story is it wasn't very good. Um, yeah, I, I, let's return my my biography is. Uh, we'll just wrap it yeah, up. Yeah. I started translating Chinese fiction as kind of a frustrated um, writer of literary fiction, and that proved to be something I was interested in. I discovered this wide world of contemporary Chinese fiction that was unavailable to most of the world and started working on it and basically convinced people to give me a shot, allowing me to do that. So I've done a number of novels. Uh, was the Shanxi opera is the, is the latest one. That's that's sort of my, my mainline thing. As well, I've been writing and researching things on the side like Cybernetics has been a has been a, a big one, and North Korean environmentalism, of course, those those sorts of topics. Uh, I'll usually focus, you know, they, they become my obsessions, and then eventually I'll produce something on them. Yeah, that that was interesting because uh, I followed your interest in cybernetics for a while because I also write about it from maybe a different angle, more like AI and computer vision, more contemporary stuff. But I always wonder if you were researching those topics because you're translating something related to them, or you're just thinking about writing an essay, for example. Have you written anything on, on the cybernetics stuff yet? Yeah, I I'm, I did, um, did an article that's online now that the genealogy of Chinese cybernetics, but I also... I worked with Yu Kui. He's on his project, Cybernetics for the 21st Century. So oh, I did okay. a, a chapter for an upcoming book, an academic chapter, uh, which should be out in 2024, I think. Oh, okay. So, oh, okay. But the, the interest in cybernetics did come from literature, because if you go back, the, the period of literature I'm interested in is like 1980s and this crazy intellectual fervor, this interest in, in, in getting rid of everything that had come in the 1970s. And cybernetics was such a big part of it. You know, even the, the poet Heidze, he's, he, was a, he was a systems theory guy. And he wrote on it at length. And pretty much every author, every intell interesting intellectual of the period was, was knee deep in, in cybernetics or, or systems theory, information theory. So to even understand the 1980s, uh, the, like the intellectual landscape of 1980s China, you have to figure out cybernetics. And to figure that out, you need to understand sort of the Chinese roots of it, like going back to Qian Shui-sen and his ideas of systems engineering and those kind of things and how they 
how they developed and how they came to be so important. Um, so that it was, it is sort of connected to to literature and intellectual life in the 1980s. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I find it really fascinating that whenever you look at something about China in the 80s, um, or even a bit earlier than that, you always find someone who was into cybernetics or who was working to, you know, bring it into the Chinese military or trying to figure out systems for all kinds of different things. Um, I was looking at some older research into computer vision, uh, which is also very much connected to that. Uh, of course, Chen Shui-sen and then... You have really fascinating guys like Jin Guantao, yeah, who yeah, yeah. like um, proposed, he basically came up with a sort of a cybernetic or systems theory model for understanding Chinese history, that the idea of the ultra stable yeah. Uh, what ultra is it called? Systems. The ultra-stable system. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That and that was like such an intellectual bomb exploding on the 1980s landscape that fed into stuff like river elegy. Yeah. And yeah. to 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 wrap your head around that requires a lot of a deep reading of that kind of stuff because their 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 intellectual priors are so different from what you would imagine. Like even talking about whether you're talking about liberal thinkers or or neo-Confucian authoritarians, you need to you need to dig into that stuff. Stuff. And there's basically none is translated into English. And it's this alternate world that you can slip into. Yeah, absolutely. And also it's so different from uh, the history of cybernetics in the US or Europe, uh, which was prior to that and kind of faded away by that time. And it's so, yeah, so interesting to see how it kind of got imported into China and became a completely different thing with this whole uh, yeah meta stable system theory or yeah, change the yeah. uh, post cybernetic thought. Yeah. Yeah, it's a completely different, it sort of was able to develop in isolation, both from the Soviet Union and from the United States. I mean, of course, through Chen Shui-sen, it has roots in like American defense yeah, yeah. planning and that that system, but, and and Chinese defense planning, uh, but it, it turned into something else entirely. Yeah, and it also had- Very few people know about. Yeah, it also had, I don't know if I understand correctly, but a pretty fraught relationship with uh, yeah, different times in Chinese government and CCP, because it kind of went from being something that was very much supported to then- ups and downs of being uh, seen as yeah like, yeah if you like go back to the great leap forward that's where Chen Shui-sen has this idea that because um he he has this idea that the great leap forward will be the time when his system science can 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 be fully implemented he had no idea that they're out in the countryside um you know smelting pig iron and and catching flies right. but he starts drawing up all these insane diagrams of how he's going to build this weather control system and a oh, perfect system for planning right? fertilizer yeah yeah it's, it's interesting that the great leap forward is for him it's this moment of like science the high point where they're going to push through to the next level, but it turned out to be something, uh, let's say, worse. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and and if you go if you go through like system science and and cybernetics was was being debated back and forth in the in in the middle of the Cultural Revolution. Well, towards the end of the Cultural Revolution, people. That's when you also have writing about the, the some of the earliest writing, modern writing about um, artificial intelligence, where where people are debating from like a cult, from like a gang of four politics, what what should be the approach to artificial intelligence. It's really interesting to go back to that writing. Yeah, yeah, I mentioned that because I remember. Now I don't have the source or anything, but I remember there was probably under 
uh, when Deng Xiaoping fell kind of out of favor uh, or his like faction, it was seen as connected to this cybernetics and tech development. And there was a piece saying something like, yeah, AI is reactionary or yeah, the idea of artificial intelligence is reactionary because it's like giving too much agency to the machine rather than the revolutionary spirit. Now I forgot the, exactly yeah, something yeah. like that. Was... Exactly. I mean, like there was like the, the the big tension towards the end of the Cultural Revolution was like the state council people, the, these technologists who wanted to industrialize and import foreign technology, and then you know the Gang of Four. The so in the middle of the Cultural Revolution, you have these these publications that come out supported by the state council where they begin translating work on cybernetics and systems theory, artificial intelligence from the Soviet Union and from the United States. But they're always they always open with an essay uh, blasting these things as reactionary and, and mentioning that we also need to um, criticize uh, Lin Biao and Confucius at the same time where we're talking about artificial intelligence. Technical question: How how do you find these materials? Because obviously, I you know, someone who doesn't live in China hasn't for a long time. When I was there, or even when I was in Hong Kong or Taiwan, you can always uh, find interesting stuff in you know archives, especially if it's historical materials. Uh, you have somewhat easier access. I just wonder, you living, having lived in Japan uh, for a while, yeah. how do you approach this? Is this stuff that you find online, or you go through other kinds of sources? Well, quite a bit has been digitized online, uh, and then it's just availing myself of you know, friends who are researchers in China um, who can. Who can usually locate oh, okay. things for me, or even in Japan, where there's quite, quite extensive archives of of Chinese material. But it's it's all pretty much relies on the friendship of of Chinese researchers and Chinese scholars who are looking at some of the same topics. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I I absolutely also agree with you that this stuff, both both fiction and uh, academic research, is dramatically under translated uh, into English and other languages. I imagine. Um, I really appreciate the work of there's a scholar named Angela. Xiaowu. Oh, yeah. She's done some really impressive work. She she put out a paper a year ago called Journalism via System Cybernetics. And it it attempts to sort of tell the tell the give a snapshot of media theory in in, in the 1980s in China. And yeah, I, I guess it's just a recommendation of, of Angela Xiaowu's work uh, that I've relied on a lot. For sure. I haven't read that one. I read her earlier work on uh, yeah, online discussions about yeah, the internet and technology. But this one is, uh, I've, I think I've seen the title, I haven't read it yet. It's good to rec. How, in terms of like, yeah, translating and deciding uh, what to, you know, focus on or bring to the attention of readers, how do you, how do you work? Uh, I guess it's very different from, from translations of narrative uh, where probably a publisher works with you or do you propose things um, to publishers as well? Well, uh, it's an interesting question. It, uh, a lot of it, well, all of it comes down to money now. So very little Weird. literary fiction. Yeah, very little literary fiction sells enough to turn a profit, obviously. So what it comes down to is who can fund a translation. So in the past, of course, there, there were, you know, academic presses might put out a novel by, by somebody. Of course, there are exceptions to literary fiction and translation won't turn a profit. I'm sure books by Moyen after he won the Nobel can turn a profit or, or Yen Lianke, these, these big 1980s uh, liberal dissident writers. But in general, it comes down to who funds it. And increasingly, the funding will come from Chinese institutions now. So to, like the Jiapinghua, I see he's a yeah. writer I've translated quite a bit of. He's, his, his translations into English are all funded by 
um, you know, the Writers Association and various institutions he's associated with in China. And that's the reason he's translated. Uh, if you if you take a work by, let's say, the most exciting writer you're reading in Chinese, an, a novelist, and, and try to pitch a publisher on it as a, as a marketable work, you'll really go nowhere. The first question they will ask is, who's going to fund it? And you need to go to a Chinese institution that's associated with that writer and get the money there and come back to the publisher and pitch them on it again with the knowledge that they're going to be backed up by by however many uh, thousand uh, renminbi. That's, that's, the, that's the way it is now. Uh, so that that sort of skews what's available in literary translation, mm. in literary fiction in translation, and skews what what can come out through a through a Western publisher. Wow. Okay, I did not imagine this at all. So it's very um, interesting. I actually have a story to tell regarding yeah. to this. So when I was in, uh, in my last job, when I was in uh, Chinese Chinese institution and a Chinese university, they had this scheme where they have a whole scheme where you get you can apply for funding to get a, a title, Chinese title translated. So like each project can get maybe uh, 200k IMB to up to 200k maybe to half a million depending on what kind of how big the project is how big the book is but usually what happens more interesting is this they don't let you choose a title they give you a lease of titles the the, the lease of titles is usually not as extensive uh for fiction it's much smaller than say um the most of it is very much this this is uh um within the realm of humanities uh this is not even counting any sort of any engineering or sciences stuff so for humanities that this is there's a pot of money this money is funded by um either i think the chinese china research council this whole project i think is called a uh, china scholarship or china going abroad or something like that along the lines uh, uh so so this project at the time I, I had the look i had a very close look at the the lease of titles there are very few um, fictions that are, are interesting. So most of the fictions that are list on the list are um, already fairly famous authors. That so you can see that um, there was more like um, titles by Liu Cixin uh, that is not translated yet, uh, uh, and other sort of um, prominent figures, sort of very mainstream authors. Um, and so it's really if you're looking sort of digging to sort of the, the the bigger landscape of Chinese literature, especially very contemporary literature they don't have much stuff in there so that's that's sort of sort of on the from the other side um, very interesting what um, you were talking about earlier how these you actually approach the publisher or the chinese publisher or the mm. whoever the founders are because they they are schemed within the say the china research council or universities where these are fundings that go through professors and then professors then would hire a translator to do the job um so in that sense the professor have to they you can also select a title outside of the list but you have to write very extensive justification and from what i heard i mostly don't get chosen anyway so there is someone out there at the top deciding what gets translated basically they just have a so then just whoever gets the money i guess to do the job yes i I mean, th that's absolutely, it's, it's kind of interesting that the, the Chinese publishers as well, it's not, it's not always that they're choosing really kind of lame mainstream choices or something like that. There's, there's, 
if when you go to a Chinese publisher, you you meet the people there. They're they're all usually young women in their twenties or early thirties, very hip, very cool. And sometimes they'll pitch you a book. They'll say, "We can we can sponsor this. We can support it. You just need to find a publisher." And then they'll come up with something that is that is completely unmarketable, not because it's 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 bad or because it's it's you know infected with a certain Chinese political language or something or anything you would imagine, but it's just too difficult. Like、um, it'll be they'll be vastly overestimating the readership that's that's available. Like the book I just did, the, the Shanxi Opera, Jia Pinghua, it it's it's like two thousand pages in translation. And it's it's sort、wow. of a vanity project. It's a vanity project of Jia Pinghua. It's it's something that he could get funded because he's like a target of somebody who needs to zhou chu chu, somebody who needs to somebody who's su- supported by the the Chinese government、yeah. to some extent. But his book is so difficult and dense, and it's just difficult that it it will have like a a market of like two hundred people are interested in this in this book. But it's all paid for by Chinese institutions, which is good for me, but but not necessarily good for. Um, I don't know for literature. Is the book、uh, is it popular in China though? Yeah, that's the that's the thing.、Um, basically, the the publisher will will sell most of these books in China, or or institutions who funded it will buy the books themselves to to stock their offices.、Uh, there was a book a couple years ago. Jia Pinghua wanted to get it published. It was an older book. It was a very it, the translation of it wasn't very good. Okay, if you look at Jia Pinghua, Jia Pinghua is this incredibly famous guy. He he published a book in the early 1990s called、uh, Ruined City. It was banned for 13 years. It's a book about a sort of like a Philip Roth kind of thing about a、um, a lascivious writer who's just scything his way through the city and writing about his conquests. That was banned. And then he went on to write very dense rural novels. Very Very impressive. He's a he's a brilliant writer, but he was never translated into English. We had Mo Yan, we had Yan Liangke, we had all those people. We never had Jia Pinghua. Finally,、yeah. the, the dam burst. But Jia Pinghua did not care about being translated into English. He and he was sort of he had run a run a foul of authorities in the '90s, so he was kind of damaged goods. But then the the levy burst, and Jia Pinghua and the the people behind him wanted to get his books translated. So they just paid whoever to put them out. So you have his books coming out on these small presses in in the UK, where they basically print off a couple copies and then. Print off another couple hundred more, put them in a box, send them to China to decorate offices in various institutions. There was no, there was no intent to ever market the book as a translation. There, a number of Jia Pinghua's novels have have met that same fate, where they basically might as well be out of print in the West, but there's boxes and boxes of them being shipped back to China. Wow. Okay. I'm, I'm another just, thing、I'm、I didn't just... imagine. Yeah. Go.、On. Yeah. I'm just looking at Japanese's Rune City because I read this book when I was very young, long time ago.、Um, I read only read the Chinese. I didn't know I didn't even know it was translated. So I was just looking at the translation right now, and it, it was when was this published?、Uh, I think seventeen, two thousand seventeen. I want to guess. Yeah. So I mean, I would imagine that because I would assume his works would be translated because I never look it up. I never yeah well care. Well, but... he was there was a, there of course in the early nineteen nineties there was a big problem because his his book was banned. He was kind Of、um, a shady figure in in、yeah. literary circles, and when when foreign translators or journalists went to meet him, they would always be surveilled. So it had a French translation immediately after it was published.、Well, quite quite soon after it was published in Chinese, but then it could never be.、Um, it was never in English. 
there's an, an the other problem is that that Jiapinghua completely did not care about his books being read outside of China, and he he had a friend who came to him. Um, and said, I, I've translated your book, uh, Ruined City. It's just one of his old Shanxi friends, Xi'an University buddies. Mm. And Jiapinghua said, perfect. That's, a, that's excellent. You do whatever the heck you want with that, with that translation. So when, when anybody after that came to seek permission to translate Ruined City, Ruined Capital, Abandoned Capital, um, whatever you want to call it, they, mm. Jiapinghua would say, well, I already gave permission to such and such a person. So, and then that translation was shopped around to various um, academic publishers in the West, like University of Hawaii Press was one that that had a copy of that of that translation from the 90s. And so the book could never be translated. Finally, Howard Goldblatt, who's sort of a superstar translator of Chinese literary fiction, was given the task and he sort of did a half-assed job on it. And this book that was such a again, such a bomb on the intellectual landscape of the, of the 1990s in China was mm -hmm. put out on University of Oklahoma Press and uh, was got a review in the New York Times, but a little capsule review and sort of went completely unnoticed because nobody cared about marketing it or, or having it read. Mm, yeah. and, and how about the this uh, Shanxi opera? Uh, is it something that you think will have a wider reception in translation? Or is it also the case that, yeah, maybe some China studies people will read it people who are really into Chinese literature, but it's, uh, it hasn't been contextualized better. Yeah. Um, there's sirens raging outside. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's, it's been, it's a weird book because it came out through Amazon. This was sort of a, a sweetheart deal where Amazon was forced to put out a number of Chinese books in translation. Oh wow! Okay. As part of as part of a deal to have access to the Chinese market, it's a Amazing. very complicated thing. So they put out this crazy Did book. It, didn't that just buy out of the Chinese market? Yeah, yeah. They, this is, but this was before. So they, they, this was okay. agreed before. So, okay. um, yeah, it, it didn't work out, obviously. But so this has been in the works since like 2016 or 17. But so the book is being marketed on Amazon's website, but it's very strange because most of what Amazon publishes is, let's say, like genre fiction or romance novels. So you have side by side with those books, um, this weighty tome, uh, a crazy rural novel spanning the 1980s to present. And you can see the way they market it is, is very, very strange. You know, it, it goes out to people who are signed up for some Amazon program, people who are on Goodreads, Goodreads power users who are writing, you know, 20 reviews of books a day. And it's, it's very funny to see their reaction to it because it is a, it is a very, it's a very filthy, uh, profane novel about rural life. There's, there's no punches pulled. It's a very nasty book. The language in it is very nasty. Um, Jiapinghua himself is kind of a nasty man mm. and the reactions to it when you read it, when you read the Amazon reviews or, or, or the Goodreads reviews, it's just like, um, like people in the Midwest, like Midwesterners in their, in their sixties being shocked because right on the, on the, on the first page, there's, there's, there's terrible language that, that could not make it into a, in, into a work of English language literary fiction written today, very very nasty words to refer to to uh, genitals and and um, there, there, yes, very a, very bad words. There's a post 
and uh, to talk about the uh, Paper Republic, uh, I think is by you, Jeff uh, Pingwa and Dick Jokes. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. Because I, I I distinctly remember his language because when I read the, I remember I think it was my dad or my 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 uncle telling me not to read that. Yeah, because they were distinctly. I remember the language, especially a lot of it. But I was really young, and it was a lot of the language was very much. Uh, I didn't understand it because um, there was sort of, yeah. It sort of became like later. Lady Chatterley's Lover, or something like that. It was considered like um, there's some writer I can't remember who wrote an essay about it a couple of years ago, saying it was the sex education manual that kids should have gotten but didn't get. It was like the kids were reading it under the covers and passing it back and forth at school and just enjoying all the all the sexual descriptions. Um, on that fact, I think growing up there was there was very much. Uh, I think it wasn't the sexual education didn't come from Japanese wise books. That was um, that was quite of a um, like um, would today you would call them internet internet literature kind of underground literature, which is kind of uh, very long kind of fantasy novels where they have like very very long kind of passages of sex sex scenes and stuff. That's uh, like say would be really like much say a dungeon dungeon dragon story, but with uh, a pornographic anime in it. So that kind of stories were circulating in schools and as 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 sort of uh, I think for kids, uh, Japanese would be quite difficult in a sense, especially it is so much context, especially you're not from that kind of rural. Uh, say Ruo Sanshi's kind of um uh kind of language is right. I would I'm very surprised that this you can actually do like translating. It's gonna be very difficult. I can imagine how difficult it is. I mean, I translate stuff myself too, but mostly theory. But I think about like translating this kind of colonial language at this level, it's. It's gonna be quite challenging. I can imagine just like reading yeah. through some of the translation because I don't usually read translations. But yeah, the thing is, the thing is, like um, he he writes a lot of people make a, he writes in dialect a lot. It's sort of a mixture of dialect and then sort of very classical language. He, his mm. father was a was a teacher of the of you know Confucian classics. Mm. And so it's a mixture of like the, the Confucian classics and Ming and Qing vernacular writing and then heavy, heavy countryside dialect. So for the most part, it, it was doable. Um, but some, some phrases, there was nothing to do but ask him what he meant, because that might be a phrase that is, is only used in his village or only used on his street. And there was nothing to do but say, what does this mean? How did you get into translating novels? What I mean is, obviously, you studied Chinese, and I guess you did a lot of reading, and you mentioned that you're also a fiction writer yourself. So that's you know the English language part of that. Um, but how did you start translating? Uh, was it something that you wanted to experiment with? And so you, try, you started from shorter pieces or from translating easier things. And when did you make the jump to okay, I'm going to translate a full a full novel? Sure. Well, you know, it's it was this is another thing where I've I've sort of been lucky that nobody told me how to do it. So I just just basically started doing it. Um, you know, posting translations online and then. It was really just a, a matter of, you know, especially in like the, the mid 2000s online culture and was very hot. People were discussing all of these new books that were coming out on on BBSs. I guess that still goes on on Doban, but it was it was different back then. So 
and as well they were sort of attached to that um sort of a, a sphere of the of blogs and commenters who were looking at China. And again, that still goes on on Twitter, but it was much more active and less less stupid um, at that time, I would say. So it was just a, picking up things from that audience on the left, and well, on, on the Chinese language audience and interesting writers, people like that, and then posting it for the audience of China watchers, which they, is a bad term to describe them, but people who lived in China and were kind of interested in Chinese culture and literature for that audience, and then making connections to people there. And then it was just a case of, of sending emails to various publishers and, and asking them if I could translate something. That, that's, that, that's about it. Yeah, okay. So you practiced uh, on the internet, as is the case for uh, yeah, many people who got into stuff um, of our age, I guess. Yeah, and like nobody told me anything about copyright or seeking an author's permission to translate their work or anything like that. So I would just find this is a cool novel, translate the first 20 pages, put it online. And um, of course, you're not really supposed to do that, but that's what I did, and it turned out okay. That's very common thing in China too. Um, remember a while back, there was a story that went viral. Um, someone was a migrant worker, I think, who translated a book about Heidegger, and then you made. Yeah, I of, remember that. They made into like news, right? But it's very common for a lot of. Um, I think in China they have a term for it, mingzi or something like that. I don't. I forgot the full name of it. Like this is acronym. Ming or something like that. So it would be like, uh, oh, it's probably Minji. No, like, would no? be like, it's, it's grassroots intellectuals. Yeah, grassroots intellectuals. Yeah, yeah, something like that. So it would be different, say, contrast to some uh, institutional intellectuals, say, employed by university, for example. So, um, so who's someone who doesn't, that, that would be today would be someone who makes YouTube about, I mean, makes YouTube videos about philosophy, for example. Um, that, that they would be, be someone in, in that term, mean, mean too, right? And then, they would uh, for a lot of people like that especially i think uh, especially early 2000 they were translating a lot of um uh, whether it's literature like in say english or western european language literature into chinese or theory as well in bits and pieces and this is how originally i remember a lot of people were translating uh, it might be around mid 2000 like around 2010s were translating a lot of these uh mark fisher stuff i remember um that was before sort of the mainstream academia in china studied uh, oh they discovered this and they started uh, to talk about um um, um, um this sort of uh, more sort of edgy, I mean, well, by then, edgy kind of uh, Anglophone kind of theory. So I guess, yeah, I think this is sort of a common phenomenon on either side, I guess, this sort of uh, grassroots, I mean, non, as I, let's say, non-institutional efforts of translating as a way of knowledge, knowledge transfer. Yeah, I mean, it's much more effective than a lot of institutionalized, because I've done institutionalized things, I've done translated book into, published by a Chinese university press that no one cares about. I mean, I also did zero work of trying to publicize it, but at the same time, it's just very difficult to, in a sense that it would it would probably gain much more traction just by putting chapters on, say, Doban for free and people would read it and probably discuss it than, say, just putting it as translatable that probably nobody cares. Like the the celebrity of the of like the superstar, like it, usually the, the abbreviation is ABZR for Agamben, uh, 
who is B? Badio. Badio. Maybe Zizer can. Yeah. Uh, who else? Yeah. And Rancière. <laughs> Rancière. <laughs> yeah, Rancière. The, the, their fame was sort of built off of those message board discussions and translations of their work mm. long before mm. anybody got around to publishing it in a formal in a formal way. You mean in China, this, right? This, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in yeah. China. Yeah, yeah. And it's quite funny because I, in the past two years, before I've never read the Chinese translation of, say, French theory. Then when I got into it uh, in the past because of teaching and other things, I got into uh, actually reading them. But most of these um, sort of grassroots translations or non-institutional, non-published, like not properly published translations are actually much better than those officially published ones. So I remember I was like teaching Iglun Schoolmaster, a text by Hanshir, that, that it was the translation, the official translation they had, um, it was very bad. Whereas the, the, the just the kind of a piece and pieces published on WeChat, like chapter by chapter, those kind of translations are so much better. It makes, I mean, not just in terms of understanding the text, but also the language, the Chinese language itself is much better, much easier to read, at least from my perspective. Um, so I guess the, the, in a sense that uh, the sort of peripheral kind of intellectual circles are much better than the sort of institutional intellect, sort of inte intellectual, I mean, in, in, at least in terms of knowledge transfer, more effective, yeah. let's say. I think that's the case with literary fiction, too, when you see like even the, the kind of work that people are engaging with or or translating on Doban or or whatever portals now the the work that they're doing the books that they're choosing the the quality of their translations is is so much so much higher than than what gets published in in translation from let's say English or Russian or Arabic to to uh, to Chinese I, I don't think that's the case in like the English language internet no no no, um, no, no that's not the case yeah so but the other side because I was reading this, this is probably, I don't know if you know about this particular phenomenon, because I'm also very interested in um, internet literature in China, especially how it got translated. This is another thing I got into. I mean, this is a thing, I've never done research on this. It's something I got very interested in. I don't know if you know about this, say, those kind of um, just, uh, fictions about immortal cultivation, fictions yeah. about like this kind of, uh, I mean, urban kind of, or I mean, kind of like various kinds of like kind of internet internet literature has. They have many genres, but that that the particular genre, say, immortal cultivations, are being translated to English um, by a particular website. Forgot the name of the website, and they they have this sort of. They're all fan translations, and I I found um it was quite interesting for me to discover that oh the the it was also a kind of sensational story at the time that in in China too. They one journalist interviewed. Um, um, they specifically identify the race, uh, a black African American person being obsessed over this kind of uh, martial arts or uh, immortal cultivation novels, and, and that came from China. They was kept reading these translations, um, and also got eventually got into translating himself. It was just quite Actually, interesting. Actually, hmm. I did translate some of the that that work. Um, it was it was I don't know. Uh, perhaps it was the website where we're struggling to remember the name of but it was incredibly difficult to do because the fans of it have have so many rules about how to refer to certain things like how to refer to something like like cultivation like that kind of thing is like a set phrase that you must translate it as each each time or oh, yeah. or how oh, to yeah. translate uh xian um like what should that be or what how do you translate wuxia or something like that there was yeah. there's so many rules and and conventions about how to translate it that i found it nearly impossible because i wasn't reading it myself 
Yeah, I mean, this is the. I, I think I found the website. It's called Wuxia World. Yeah, that's right. Right. So they have these. Uh, they have a massive catalog by now of mostly. I mean, very well. It's probably very in, also related to Gabriel and Asa's interest in Dungeon and Dragons. They, a lot of these are very much like very similar kind of to that kind of fantasy, but of course in sort of Chinese mythology, but also very kind of in modern settings. It's kind of like um, this is very similar to I would say to sort of Japanese night novels of like say um, isekai or something like that. But but this will be in a sort of right very sort of I don't know why. Say for example, I don't know why isekai in specifically got so much like attention in the West. Whereas say the very similar genres of these kind of wuxia worlds, these kind of novels, they're very they're, they're very similar of of kind of similar kind of uh, story backstories of of someone who's very unsatisfied with their well, real life um, somehow gets a new life, a new life of either either by reborn or or, or immortal cultivation, or whatever. So I guess um, I don't know. That's, um... I mean, Japan had a stronger like soft power push for for decades. I guess people got interested in that kind of literature from from maybe in manga and anime that mm. China doesn't hasn't really had yet. Plus, maybe there were no translations. I mean, I read some. Are these like serialized uh, wuxia stuff, like the science fiction online science fiction literature? Is it similar kind of model, or they're like full books? Yeah, it's like not two thousand part version. Okay, okay, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. So they're very different than say. Uh, Jin Yong and the sort of classic mm -hmm. Wuxia novels, they're very different. So they're, they're much longer and they don't usually have sort of, they're not literature in the sort of traditional sense, I would say. This would be like to think about uh, uh, traditional Japanese novels and that between, uh, and between Jap traditional Japanese novels and night novels. They're, they're so different just in terms of the way you consume them, the way you think about them, maybe even, even I don't know about in Japan, maybe there's a different even cultural status. In China, that is the case so if you read like internet, internet literature and literature proper the cultural status of those are very different but also obviously with this kind of novels uh, the, the um, Wushan world uh, that, that have a much bigger reader base uh, they're massive um, so yeah I don't but know it, it's in a way it's surprising that, they, that these novels do actually have quite a fan base like they have reddit communities devoted to them and people are discussing it online in English these these Chinese books it's sort of a and their their appreciation of it is sort of disconnected from an appreciation of any other cultural product from China. They're just into mm. these into these uh, whatever wuxia exactly. novels. Yeah. So this is sort of just going back to the cliches of soft power, right? This is this is this is something that sort of almost like um th this would be a channel if they really want to push for soft power. This this would be a great channel to push for that, but. I guess for them this would be this would be like something that they wouldn't consider as 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 the the kind of culture they want to I don't know like so like when you're talking about Zhou Tuqi, so it would be uh uh Japan Japanese would be much better as a candidate for even though the the books would be read by two hundred people right I mean there's that's what I mean that when I said before overestimating the readership that that you know these people are Chinese publishers who think there's there's a there's a hungry readership for. Different Difficult literary fiction when they could turn to these. There's always that idea of Jiang Hao, Jiang Hao, Zhongguo's story. Tell China's story well. Yeah. 
Um, and this, they, that, that is, that would be a great channel to, uh, you know, you could even pay off some of the writers to, to inject some, some political talking points here and there uh, in their, in their web fiction, maybe between chapters 2000 and 2001. And, uh, but there's, there's no interest or, or awareness of that as a, as a channel. Yeah. It's just, it's very interesting how in, in the sort of on the other side, Japan's night novels has been adapted also, I mean, they adapted to anime and stuff, but also through maybe anime, they become so big, like especially specific genres like isekai, for example. There's so many discussions of it, right? So it's just, it's kind of, for me, it's kind of very puzzling. And also, wow, that's, that's it's almost like the yeah. same thing, but get an entirely different treatment. The th you know, for me, I'm always mystified by by these sort of, the, the popularity of these Japanese cultural exports like isekai or, or light novels or even manga or, or anime. Because it, I'm just a bit too old. When I was growing up, Japan was very much like on a cultural downswing. I was just a bit too old. And it's it's strange to see like kids in their teens and their early 20s who are big into Japan. Because I always thought it's, well, it's it's done. It's pretty much culturally moribund, but but they're they're picking it up. Japan is still hot somehow. Are they still, yeah. are these things also very popular in Japan? And or are the Chinese one popular in Japan? Is there somehow more interest in Japan than maybe in Europe or the US for that kind of like cross-cultural fandoms? Or I don't know, what do you observe in Japan living there? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's a there's a, an incredible amount of Chinese readers for for manga and light novels quickly translated into Chinese. Or there's even many Chinese young people who can who will read things in in Japanese. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, there was. There was an incident here not too long ago. There's a there's a streetcar that runs near the coast in a place called Enoshima. And it was featured in some kind of a manga. I think it was a basketball manga. And this place near the coast where the streetcar runs has been routinely mobbed by tourists from from Hong Kong and Taiwan and, and from, from mainland China who want to take pictures uh, with it. And of course, this manga is, is not on my cultural radar at all. I've, ne I've never heard of it. I have no no awareness of what it is, but it, it clearly has a, has a massive fandom within China and within the greater Asian world. But as for fandom of, of Chinese cultural products in Japan, I, I don't have a sense that, that it is particularly popular. That That's just my sense. Yeah, no, it, may, it does make sense. Before recording, we're just briefly, we're talking about, you know, being in academia and out uh, or doing this kind of work outside of uh, maybe academic or yeah, circles. I was wondering if as a translator of both uh, fiction and nonfiction, are you in some kind of, is there a professional circle of translators um, or is it also fractured where there is like academic ones and, and more independent ones? And how, how do things work? Do you like evaluate each other's work uh, or is there a commentary on translations or are there different factions? I, I don't know anything about it. So I'm kind of curious about the sure. back, backstage of the work. Yeah. Well, there's, there's very few good translators of, of Chinese fiction into English for the simple reason that, that the field was dominated by sinologists. Right, in the past, right, yes. So every every big book like Mo Yan or Yan Lian Ke, these superstars of Chinese literature who sell well, were translated by um, sinologists, people who were not interested in contemporary China by and large, and were not very good writers. Perhaps they're good writers of a, of they're good academic writers. I don't yeah, know, yeah. but they're not they're not fiction writers. When you when you pick up a translation from from French or or um, or German, it's been it's been quite often done by somebody who's a gifted writer in their own language. 
language, who has a career as a, as a fiction writer in their own language. Whereas Chinese was dominated by those Sinologists who produced the most wooden, terrible, plodding prose. And for the most part, those people have still kept their stranglehold, even as they get into their 80s, of, of all the big books that are going to be published in, in the West. They, they often go to those Sinologists as well. There's are, and there's been sort of a backlash against that. These people were, were generally of a certain political background, sort of liberals who were selecting books by writers who would have a liberal viewpoint. They were also generally elderly white men who might be didn't have their pulse on on what was happening in China. They had quite often had never been to China. They had studied in Taiwan, perhaps, and had never been to China since the 1990s. So there was sort of a backlash by a lot of uh, young uh, Chinese American or Asian American and diaspora translators who were interested in work that wasn't that didn't fit with those with what the Sinologists were interested in. So there was interest in like online queer literature and literature from the Chinese diaspora and, uh, you know, much, much more interesting work than what those Sinologists were, were producing. So if there's any faction, I, I guess that that would be sort of, that would describe it, the Sinologists on one side and then sort of young people uh, raised on the internet in another right, yeah. circle. <laughs> one is obviously plugged into traditional publishing and one is, has has to look outside of traditional publishing because a lot of the work they're interested in was was never published as a book it was it was uh, like a web novel or mm-hmm. you know an, an online diary or something like that so they found various outlets to publish those things on whereas traditional publishing still plods along taking these uh, writers from the 1980s, these liberal intellectual writers from the 1980s. So Chinese literature and translation is completely bizarre because what makes the Douban list every year of like the, the best novels, we'll never see them in translation wow. or we might see them in 10 years because those the, the people who have a stranglehold on publishing and, and translation are, are um, not interested in it. And also the Chinese people who are funding it are often looking for more, the most serious um, uh, renowned writers who have made a name in the cultural bureaucracy uh yeah yeah that's interesting that's the same thing that's the same thing when i was talking about the list of novels being selected the problems i found with those that list is that um it often focuses on the already kind of renowned officially recognized authors that i mean i'm not saying that they, they're all bad or just there might be more interesting things to do right um for example i remember that dylan was talking about fun fun on twitter or something mm, yeah example. fun fun for me is a profoundly local author it's it's his right. novels are mostly about wuhan like it was only because of COVID and his diaries and became a sort of push especially in the west the work a lot of his work have been translated and seeing him seeing her as a trans a, tra- a controversial figure oh yeah, or whatever yeah. but like and they, people then get this impression somehow that she's somehow like a dissident or somehow she's she's like being shut and shut down or something but not really like her book is still being published in china um and her novels yeah she would like you said she made a name for herself with like in the 1980s early 90s with these with these books about you know not even wuhan as a whole but like her neighborhood in wuhan she did but this this gets to the thing with the sinologists is that they're looking for books that that tell you something about china Mm. or looking for material that tells you about china we need to like they're looking for this didactic um element in the work whereas some of the best literature from china some of the best 
poetry, whatever it is, doesn't say anything about China.、Mm-hmm. Doesn't doesn't communicate in these in these sort of slogans anything about China. So it's sort of overlooked by these people who are interested in China, who are the gatekeepers of this kind of material. Yeah, I think it's a quite unique、uh, situation, right? Because you don't see this with other. Uh, countries or cultural contexts, you know, outside of the English language. I don't know about Japan, but maybe Japan went through this kind of stage. But now there's perhaps less interest in more like variegated、uh, kind of cultural circuits through which these materials pass. I don't know how you feel about it. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely true. Japan always had. Japan attracted a different type of Orientalist,、mm, kind of、yeah. uh, generally a, a more fun type of Orientalist,、uh, who who was who was who were quite successful in promoting work that was far outside of.、Mm. Basically, the Sinologists were very were not interested at all in modern China. They were interested. They their of the, their opinion would be the the whole thing kind of stopped in 1949. Nothing interesting happened after 1949. Perhaps nothing interesting happened after 1911.、Mm. So they were they were completely uninterested, and they remain generally uninterested in cultural output.、Um, you know, after that, if you look at histories of Chinese literature, Chinese literature sta- ceases to exist between 1949 and and 1978. They they just drop everything out of that period. Yeah, it checks out. Yeah, whether it's you know, and and there was like you know a lot of terrible official literature, but there's all sorts of underground poetry from that period, and and Red Guard、uh, scripts. Reads and and all kinds of unofficial publications that are just dropped out,、um, and even everything after 1978, unless it's unless it's sort of from a liberal viewpoint,、uh, a humanist viewpoint, it's 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 viewed with suspicion.、Mm-hmm. You know,、uh, pretty much everything is viewed with suspicion that doesn't that can't be marked as dissident. Everything, right?、Mm-hmm. That's interesting.、It's、I、really、think it, it also responds to kind of what Dylan was talking about: publishers making evaluations about what will sell. Because I, I、mm. what I've seen since when I started studying Chinese is that even in Italian, what gets published is the same kind of dissident or you know classic or a book that it's about something in China. So that's what people think they want to read.、Uh, so it's probably what、mm. sells more than if you just translate a novel that that maybe is very popular in China, but. Um, would be harder to market somehow. I don't know.、Mm. In a in a way, I mean, Chinese literature does lend itself to that. Oh, sorry. Yeah. There's a there's a there's a thinker called C. T. Xia who wrote about the the obsession with China and how how Chinese writers were. Um, in the you know in the first part of the last century up until the present they were writing they were they would tend to write books about China whatever they were writing it was about China it was these bold statements about China and as well in in Chinese literature there's there's that idea that there must be a didactic function to it yeah、uh, you wouldn't write a book、um, necessarily I think a lot of people have this view or or had this view that you wouldn't write a book just for Purely entertainment, but if you are a serious writer, your book must have some didactic purpose. So, in a, in a sense, the sinologists have a lot to choose from when when looking for books that that make statements on China, because so many books,、um, in fact, do in a way that they that they don't necessarily in 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 Japanese literature or or、um, Italian literature. Less less bold pronouncements about the state of the country. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I also was curious about your experience、uh, in Japan because obviously a lot of your work in translation is related to China,、um, but you also write a lot about Japan and other East Asian countries,、uh, mm. perhaps even beyond to Asia in general. Um, but do you mostly write for an English audience, or do you have a local audience that follows you there? Because that's also what interests me. You know, when working about China, but not really having the Chinese readership,、um, makes me question, you know, what I'm doing or. 
um, yeah. engaging with with people locally is always interesting. Mm, yeah, yeah, I f- I feel the same way that. Um, you know, I've over the years I've thought that I should probably stop writing in English. Um, quite often, I I I've, I I write something and I think, well, this this would be so much more worthwhile and and get so much more engagement, right. intellectual and otherwise, if I just wrote it in Chinese. Why am I? Why am I? Why am I? Who am I speaking to? Yeah, who's, yeah, yeah. Who who is reading this? Um, uh, yeah, that's always this this feeling that's 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 haunted me. You know, once you leave like these basic topics of of you know uh, these high level Chinese political things, if you're writing about a book published in Chinese and with no translation, what's what's the point? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> but I'm I I haven't gone I haven't followed through on my convictions to actually do that. But I feel it is it would probably be the best thing. I mean, living in Japan, I do have a lot of friends here and friends in the intellectual community mm-hmm. who I who I speak with but my work doesn't actually they don't actually engage with my work and I rarely engage with their work either because they've written it in Japanese I've written my work in English mm-hmm. and and there's mm-hmm. there's sort of no no of course there's a common language that either of us could adopt but then we would be stepping outside of of the spheres that we're most comfortable with and we receive the most engagement with and which we know the you know the the, the sort of the unwritten rules of um, yeah, I don't know if that's a if that's a very satisfying answer. No, no, for these, sure. These, these, these I mean, things, it's a bold. Uh, me, yeah. It's a bold step that you know I could never take. I think just like okay, I'm gonna write in Chinese. Like first of all, I can't. But uh, I w- it would be very hard to find my voice. But I noticed the you know the few things that got translated that I wrote in Chinese or in other languages. Uh, you always get so much more feedback and interest than yeah speaking to the English language yeah. audience, which is not even my like first language. So yeah, I wrote that thing about about Jiang Qing. Jiang Qing mm-hmm. is a Nietzsche. And that's a that's something like I received so many notes about that mm. from Chinese readers and zero notes from oh, yeah, right. anyone who read the thing in English. It was it was it was it was meant for a Chinese audience. It was speaking to yeah, and it, and it unfortunately wasn't written in Chinese, which it, which mm. should have been. What about your work on uh, North Korea, for example? Uh, does that come from following threads from your China related? work and then you end up in you know North Korean environmentalism or was it something that was completely unrelated then you just delved into it and also what sources do you read Korean or also or it's like through translations sure that? yeah well it's like um that's another thing that sort of haunted me this sense that that much of what's written about China should be mm-hmm. written about a sort of like a greater East Asia cultural sphere so if anybody's writing about um you know birth rate in in China mm-hmm. it, it's a story that that stretches around East Asia it stretches a, a, sort of around a, a larger sphere than East Asia but but if you if you just make that into a China story it's very uninteresting mm-hmm. it's so it's I've sort of been trying to connect each thread that I see in China or Japan or Korea, stitch it together across multiple contexts. Yeah. Because it, it seems much too limited to just write about um, uh, one element of, of Chinese life when you when when you could instead of essentializing it to to the Chinese context, you could you could broaden it out, and um, things like you know North Korea was just a, has just been a, an, an obsession for for a long time since I was since I was young, and you know nobody has invited me to write anything about it mm-hmm. uh, until now. Um, yeah, I and it is well. It does come from language study as well of 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 studying uh, Korean, which I, I still 
couldn't say I speak or, or read Korean. I wouldn't, I wouldn't claim to. Or, and studying Vietnamese and Japanese too, and, and being, having my eyes opened and having access to these, this greater uh, source as well. Um, you know, every time I'm looking at a China story now, I'm, I will look back to Japanese scholarship on that topic or Japanese reporting on that topic, Korean language reporting on it. And it's um, been sort of just a goal to stitch all of those places together you know it's still somewhat limited but better than just writing the china story yeah i think it's or the japan story yeah it's it's i don't know it's this idea of avoiding what's you know in academia is called methodological nationalism also just not reducing everything to what it happens here because it's a nation state and it's about it uh, and there was this pretty good uh, book, book or booklet, uh, I think it's called China as Method. I don't know if you read it. Or, uh, yeah, 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 I have. Uh, and also The Broader Idea of Asia as Method by, I think it's a Taiwanese, uh, I forgot his name, Taiwanese author. But yeah, just this idea of maybe like broadening or taking, yes, focusing on one country, but then following out threads, um, yeah, avoiding nation state focus. Um, could you yeah. give us the brief about North Korean environmentalism? Because I, I don't know much. So I'm just curious of how you... <laughs> Sure. How you got into there and what you found out um, and how it relates to maybe yeah, China or other countries in East Asia. Yeah, it was just um, sort of looking at what is outside of, you know, globalized environmental governance. Is there anything outside of it? Mm. Um, and really the, the, there's, there's, there's some people outside of it and they're usually indigenous peoples right. of, of, uh, you know, Central and South America or, or even India. Um, though that's basically the only alternative outside of that, you know, that massive globalized system, that liberal unipolar mm -hmm. system of environmental governance. But Korea, North Korea, presents an interesting, um, an interesting option. It's sort of, it's in a sense, it's like an, an in, I, I don't want to, I don't want to phrase this the wrong way, but it's, it's sort of like an indigenous tribe that happens to have nuclear weapons. Right. <laughs> they are they are practicing a form of autarky there that and they have a different source for their environmental thinking mm -hmm. that is very far outside of globalized environmental governance so it's interesting to, to look at what they're doing there cut off from the outside world cut off to some extent even though they'll sign on occasionally to various un um you know agreements they're completely outside and they're pursuing it in for completely different reasons in a sense than than what japan is doing with its sustainable development goals mm -hmm. or whatever they they must practice it and they practice it differently and it's very interesting to consider it um, to consider the the mythological basis of it to consider how it looks in practice how the technology they're pursuing to do it you know the research institutes that are that are looking at hybrid varieties of trees they are sort of at at the point we will be at much sooner as well mm. because they they have had a terrible ecological a series of terrible ecological crises yeah, for sure. um happen to them so their existential need to develop a, an environmentalism and environmental thinking is is somewhat inspiring if we are all going to be cooked alive or swallowed by the seas they're they're there much sooner than us yeah that's an interesting uh way of thinking about north korea i mean i, I can see why it is uh, can be thought as problematic but uh, this kind of combination between autarky, uh, authoritarian, totalitarianism puts them in a situation where they, they need to deal with crisis uh, that will become global at some point. Yeah, and to, and even if it is, I mean, to some extent, anything like written like this is is somewhat fantastic. It is somewhat relying on 
its own phantasmatic narrative. Um, you mean the the, the but, North Korean materials or, or yeah, the, yeah the North Korean environmental. I mean, and as well, global environmental governance relies on its own phantasmatic narratives. Yeah. But um, it's sort of a, an account of that narrative. But actually, like on the ground, there's there's measurable um, achievements that they've made in in reforestation. I don't want to come off as if I'm a, as if I'm a like an apologist of, of sure. Kim Jong Un. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, but but there are there are steps that they've taken often out of necessity mm -hmm. to just not be starved and to not be flooded out to feed the people out of necessity because they have been cut off from the global um from the globe basically yeah yeah yeah, yeah that's an interesting thought also an interesting point of like one of the few places on earth uh also a nation state that is definitely not global because we often you know say oh everything is global now or to some extent but that's uh, very much an example, the contrary. Is this something I haven't read uh, much about it? But is this something you're tracing that has a, like a, a historical genealogy, or is a specific moment in time of like this environmental thinking, or more well contemporary? Yeah. yeah. The the thing is, environmental nationalism mm. was was such a strong force in North and South Korea. Okay. Because the the Koreans saw the Japanese occupation, um, not just as a because what the Japanese did was they used the Kor the Korean Peninsula as a source of raw material. So they just stripped it, they cut down all the forests and just did terrible things. So in both North and South Korea, part of the nationalism was an environmental nationalism of rebuilding the, the natural landscape. South Korea obviously had more options. They could import a lot of timber from, from Southeast Asia and raw materials from China that North Korea didn't really have. Of course, they had links with, with the Soviet Union and China in the, in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, but they, they couldn't rely on it quite the same way. So they, they've, they've built sort of a, a separate environmental nationalism from from South Korea, but kind of related to that historical moment of the of the Japanese occupation. In North Korea, it takes on somewhat mythological colors because Kim Jong Un is not Kim Jong Un. Kim Il Sung was sort of imagined to be almost um, like a like a demigod right, emerging yeah. from the forest. Yeah. The forest is what protected him. The pine trees are what are what sheltered him. And the pine trees are what kept him safe from the Japanese uh, invaders who were trying to track him down. So he sort of took on a, a, a figure as very closely associated with the land in an, in an almost shamanic way. He was connected back to the, 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 the mythical father of, of Korea, uh, Tangun, mm -hmm. and associated with him almost like an avatar of him. And uh, the, the big problem was um, his son uh, Kim Jong Il was uh, was he's he caused most of the problems, but Kim Jong Un has has sort of revived that Kim Il Sungist mm. forest shaman um, mixed with high technology thing, and it's sort of a, a source of his legitimacy in some way to protect the Korean landscape. It's, uh, it's North Korean cosmotechnics, uh, I guess. That's right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Exactly right. I, I wanted to ask you the because we we've done you know China Korea um, and actually what I see from you on Twitter mostly what I follow um, and it's very interesting is your explorations of everyday Japanese just walking around your district or or, yeah. or random cities uh, and I'm always curious if that's also you know something you're working on with a specific angle or if it's just something that interests you uh, just on an everyday basis because I can see you know when I was living wherever uh, like in China or, or Hong Kong or Taiwan I was also you know walking around every day and taking photos and 
of things that I never wrote about minor everyday life snippets of like, yeah, everyday life development, uh, just random observations. So I found the, 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 the stuff you read about Japan really fascinating. Uh, but I'm wondering if that, that's just for Twitter or are you also, you know, developing some kind of uh, interest or long-term uh, project there? Yeah. I, like when I, I first can came... I, can I yeah, ask this? I have a question yeah, yeah. that follow up that so you can answer them at the same time. A very specific question too. You have a thread about um, this uh, code, this... Uh, this uh, your oh yeah, the code. Yeah. code. <laughs> yeah. I have a specific questions about that code that you're talking about this code and you can, uh, you can talk about it's also part of everyday lifestyle that you can sort of expand on that, I guess. Yeah. Sure. Feel free to ask me about the code after I, after I say this. Um, to, to be, before I came to Japan, I, I had no particular interest in it. I wasn't a Japanophile uh, or anything like that. And in, in a sense, I was perhaps even hostile to Japan. You know, cool. some, some, somebody who's lived in China and is, is interested in China, there's that, that, that certain, I don't know, I guess I'm kind of brainwashed in a sense by that. Vicarious, vicarious nationalism. Yeah. And um, so coming to Japan was kind of a revelation. Uh, and there was so much to, that I was unfamiliar with, so much of, of Japanese history and Japanese culture and really everything was was uh was new to me japanese language japanese literature and yeah i mean when i first came i guess i was more more excited about it and more interested in it as a topic i lived in this neighborhood when i first came to tokyo called um called sanya which is an old it sort of became associated with the untouchable caste in 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 japan and it was uh, sort of transformed into a neighborhood for transients, and then it was under heavy gentrification. There's a, there's a famous red light district right on the edge of it as well. Right. And I thought I could write a book about that. And I, I wrote up a book proposal and pitched it to numerous people. And nobody was interested, and I sort of let it let it lapse, let my interest in that lapse. So often it is it is a very personal, private interest that I I think can never be turned into into anything. And as well, there's a certain I don't know, there's a certain sense that I that, uh, there's things that I that I wouldn't write about Japan, things that I couldn't write about Japan. If this is sort of a perhaps kind of juvenile on my part, but just living here and uh, living here long term and and being part of the community mm. I, I sometimes feel there's things I, I wouldn't want to comment on I, I try not to comment on Japanese politics despite having written an, an essay about the assassination of, yeah. of Abe Shinzo I, I try not to I try not to say anything anything bad about Japan it's a, it's a bit of a, it's a kind of a silly block that's in my head but yeah, that's that's what I'll say about that. No, no, I, I understand. I don't know if Dino wants to know more about the coat. The coat? <laughs> the coat. <laughs> The code was, um, I had a friend when I, when I first came to Japan, I, I worked at a restaurant. I was a food runner at a restaurant and I had a friend named Satoshi. Satoshi was sort of, um, one of those peculiar sort of Japanese people that you're very likely to meet outside of Japan. He had lived in, in Canada for, for some years and had been to Europe and had hitchhiked across China one time. And he was a collector of 1980s and 1990s vintage 
Japanese designers like um, Kamde Garçon and and Yoji Yamamoto and those sorts of things. And he would he lived in a in a very small apartment with his father, and he filled it with these with this massive archive of you know invaluable um, products of Japanese avant-garde fashion. And he would gift me every so often a, a new piece, like a like a 1988 Comte de Garçon uh, sweater or or some Yoji Yamamoto suit or something like that. And uh, the, the pigskin coat was one of those items, and it's uh, it's a it's a beautiful thing. Uh, I don't know what else to say about it. Oh well, I I read your uh, I read your for context for the listeners. This was a Twitter thread, pretty short one, I think. You posted it um, a while ago on Twitter about this coat, and I think in one of the replies you said you you rolled up in it and slept under a truck somewhere in China. <laughs> was that? <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's true. Because I mean, those those clothes that that Yoji Yamamoto was making yeah. in in that period were. He was inspired by a photographer. I can't remember his name, but he took pictures of interwar Europe, and he would take pictures of peddlers and poets and and all these range of of people who were wearing these suits of clothes that were intended to last them right. um, a lifetime, as well as signal something perhaps about their trade or something like that. So the clothes he made were absolutely bulletproof, and they were meant to be patched, and they were rugged. So yeah, this. W- I slept in the coat after hitchhiking to um, Lianyungang. So it, it wasn't Shandong, actually. It was it was Jiangsu. And arriving too early in the morning to to rouse my friend from bed, I uh, slept under a, a parked truck wrapped in the in the coat. Lovely. Wow, what a story. Yeah, it's <laughs> nice. Yeah, this is also a very different impression. I mean, I'm not very into fashion, but I guess I have a very different impression of what Yoji Yamamoto would be like than, say, just looking at what they have now is very different from mm. the code you're talking about. Yeah, he mostly makes like kind of gothy Rick yeah. Owens kind of stuff yeah. now, yeah. but I'm at the time surprised. he made really, yeah. yeah, he made really rugged, tough. Yeah. Uh, cool stuff. Just a bit more questions on your tweets because I was just reading on your tweets some of the things and it's very interesting. Sure. To me. Uh, say there was a tweet about um. Okay, let's take different. There was a question. There was a tweet about uh communist totalitarianism in uh as a term in Korea. That is um very interesting for me. I mean, I'm not very. Oh much, yeah. I'm I'm not very familiar with Korea, but just sort of from my yeah. very basic. Is it North or South Korea? South Korea. South Korea. South Korea. Okay. Yeah. There's been um, sort of a controversy with in in Korea recently. One of one of many controversies is that the um, is that the the, the called the new right um, in 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 the in the person of the of the president currently is is sort of leading a, an attack against um, anything associated with with the left. And he made a speech in which he spoke about communist totalitarianism, which is a doesn't sound strange in English, really. I mean, if you mm. stopped and thought about it, perhaps you would have some some quibble about it. But it it um, it aroused controversy in in South Korea. Um, the, the, he was blasted because the term isn't in the dictionary, and it's sort of a, a term very connected to the new right, who have used it to attack various foes uh, on the left. Um, the left is always in a precarious position in in South Korea because they there's there's a lot of political landmines whether uh, the, the issue of reunification or or the the the, the legacy of Japan and um, so that's it's sort of a symbol of the new right taking over that was a controversy that a number of statues of Korean heroes 
have also been taken down in in South Korea recently because of their association with a with a with the left wing in Korea. Mm, yeah, any, yeah. Uh, I mean, Korea, South Korea, South Korea is this really immensely interesting place. That the more I read about it, the more it sounds like. You know, yeah. hell on earth. It's the it's the future that that we're all hurtling towards, and it sounds really nasty. There's another tweet that was more getting more tractions on the meaningless crimes in South Korea. You made a thread about as long ago. Oh yeah, that was uh, that but was you cool. You con connected the uh, you connected with Japan as well as China. This kind of uh, meaningless crimes as um yeah, or, like or, China calls it revenge against society attacks. Yeah. Um, yeah. Japan, I don't think has a specific name for it, but mm. it, in in all three places, there's there's somewhat kind of a, a panic about those crimes, which are usually carried out by by young men and mm. uh, with targets that are chosen indiscriminately, often children or or the elderly or or women, mm. and it's 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 something that unites all all three countries. I mean. Yeah, of course. In in every country around the world, there's there's spree killers, but in those three contexts, the the panic about it has been somewhat similar. This this um, fear of the of the incel, and at the same time, there is especially in Korea, there's a lot of um, tension between sort of a gender, sort of like a, a simmering gender warfare going on, especially in Korea, and um, a lot of anger at at feminists and those kind of people, and then feminists also um, attacking the uh, the incel right, and those concerns in in Japan and, and Korea, especially uh, about indiscriminate killing or or random killing, have been. Sort of a side battle in that simmering gender warfare. But there's uh, there's several things that I just to it remind me of. Um, just first thing come out of it was remind me of a novel, Chinese novel that was actually translated in English as well. I forgot the name of the novel. It's about this idea of a young person who had made a, a crime, committed a crime with no with no motivation. So they, they so it was he had was as a novel. This sort of highlights this kind of nihilistic kind of boredom where they commit a crime so in that particular novel i think it was a teen adolescent teenager that strangled his friend or something um and he was just on the run from the police just for the thrill of it, of it so i guess this is sort of a difference between this idea that you're talking about the meaningless crime and then the the avenge against societies and or the incel the incel or the sort of gun violence uh, was the, the the well in the u.s for example I think they are mostly still have a motivation in the sense that they still have they still feel as some sort of unfair treatment they they are trying to sort of commit I mean they're committed to some sort of revenge in their mind right so in that sense yeah. it's not meaningless in a sense yeah none of these are meaningless really right. everybody yeah, so, everybody yeah. nobody goes out and and shoots people with with no meaning entirely but I guess it's it's described that way because. I think especially in in like Japan, South Korea, China, that violent act is more, I guess, perhaps more associated with a with a political, um, a political thought or a political allegiance. Mm. Whereas it's it's not really anymore. Like the assassination of of Abe, is to some extent basically has a lot more in common with those with those so called meaningless crimes or revenge against society attacks than it does with a 
like a like an assassination of a socialist leader in the in the 1950s it's basically a guy who lost his job and and his family went went broke and is just lashing out at 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 any target i mean abe was a a target chosen for a reason this is not completely meaningless but it, it has more in common with like somebody who starts slashing people on a subway station a young man who's uh, working some precarious job and and uh, struggling to feed himself and and has no romantic connections to the outside world has mu- that's that looks a lot more like the abe assassination mm. than anything else mm. but is it uh, right. in cell discourse also like a matter of a uh, current concern in Japan, even if it's under some other kind of name that's not incel. Uh, I don't know if it's like Hikikomori or whatever, or is it's not. I, I think it very much is. Um, so not, is, that quite in the... is, that, is that a term for it? Is that a term for it? What's the sort of a Japanese term for it? <sighs> what would be the... Um, there's not really um, like a term like incel. Probably whoever's listening to this who who knows the term is, 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 is upset with me, but I, I don't think there is. I think there's lots of descriptions like vegetarian men was a was a big term <laughs> a little mm-hmm. while ago. I know that one. Um, I know that one. Yeah, yeah or hikikomori, yeah. or just yeah. otaku, yeah. that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. O- otaku has that a very you know a meaning that it doesn't really have. It's not it's not just simply uh, somebody who plays with trains. But, the, train. but the, yeah, veti- the, the vegetarian man sounds more like volcel because they're yeah, I guess so. To, yeah, yeah. voluntarily opted out in the sense that right. Yeah, but I the, I think it was herbivore men actually. Okay. Um, um, but there was like the sense that they were like so so low low testosterone and so beaten down by society that that they that they voluntarily I guess they're not really vol they're not really vol cell they were they were just so low T and and lame that they started to spend a lot more time with women and became uh, you know I guess infected by a feminine. Uh, view mm. of the world mm. Mm. I guess but in like in culture, korea yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. in, in on, korea sorry. that the, the korea the like the 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 concern about young men um not having sex is 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 like at a really it's like a boiling level of of concern where it's it's mm. not really that that way in japan it's mm. definitely that way in, in korea oh it's not because i remember japan also had recently campaigns like for people to have kids and stuff so very like, biopolitical um, but maybe it was just public discourse and not really. Yeah, there's always concern about like in like a- attached to this idea of uh, like birth rate decline and these young men who who can't have romantic mm. uh, interests is is like um is a, a sort of a general crisis of of masculinity, which mm. I, I think is is something that's the case in in Korea and Japan and and China to to varying degrees. Mm. This idea that 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 men will will cease to to exist the, the, that that real genuine men have uh, are going extinct i think your problems so for example the other day i shared a news with gabriel about this sissification of men mm-hmm. that, 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 yeah what was the about i forgot the exact content well, the, the case system. the article you studied you shared was about china was some kind of debate about like conspiracy of uh, western forces american cultural products entering oh, yeah, china yeah, yeah, yeah. to make yeah. uh, man more feminized or something i forgot it was like yeah, it yeah, was absurd yeah, so, but yeah, yeah it was a, absurd there's yeah. there's a theory that that um johnny kitagawa he's the guy who's sort of the the Svengali of the entire well he's dead now but and he's he's embroiled in a in a posthumous dispute because he was abusing um hundreds of boys wow. but there there was there's a a theory that he was a CIA agent <laughs> sure. he was born in a, he was born in America and then went to China I'm sorry went to Japan and worked with the occupation in building up a popular culture that was 
that was not militant, mm -hmm. that was not, um, you know, aggressive or nationalistic. So it, it seems very clear that he did work with, with intelligence perhaps at some point, but uh, that, that's, that's sort of the basis of the theory that's, that's, that started in Japan. This idea that Kitagawa was, uh, was a CIA agent in charge of the feminization of the Japanese male to, to, you know, clip their, clip their wings yeah. and trim their claws so they'd never attack. And this has been picked up in China as well. Um, quite enthusiastically, and in, and in Korea too, this idea that, that that Kitagawa, by promoting these boy bands, these feminized boys, that he was having, you know, that he was raping at the same time. I, I must add, because that's a that's a key part yes, of the story. Important context. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, that. That I mean, it, it, and it shows that it was mostly his personal taste in boys. He was he was um, a sexual predator, uh, more so than than whatever the the CIA was telling him of mm -hmm. of which men to pick. Um, but yeah, it's been picked up with with great enthusiasm around East Asia. This idea that he he's feminized the Asian man through his efforts. Yeah. So this seems like another those threads of inquiry that you know could benefit from following it across Asia. And yeah, uh, rather than just in one place. Kind of... Yeah, because it's the same thing in China that was circulating recently. And but China's China is like every country goes through these waves of crises of masculinity. Because mm -hmm. in in mm -hmm. in like early reform and opening years, there was also uh, a concern about the the end of uh, the end of masculinity as the you know the economy, the economic organization of the country changed, and and the masculine, um, the man who was swinging a sledgehammer on a production brigade was no longer celebrated as much as the, as much as the sort of oily entrepreneur type who was uh, selling imported goods. There was a lot of concern in the 1980s about mm. that, and and it's, it comes up again and again if you if you go back to the, um, you know, um, there was a book called Wolf Totem uh, okay. by Zhang Rong. And it was a book about how the, the 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 Chinese, the Han Chinese man, was was the domesticated dog um, wow. being preyed on by the Mongolian wolf, and it was sort of um, a call for for healthy Han Chinese masculinity oh, yeah, by yeah. by returning to the returning to the plains, and that was in the early two thousand. So these things come in cycles all the time. People are men are always worried about their uh, masculinity. Yeah, uh, this this book I was I was um, was it was quite popular in china at the time i remember but it, it was it was quite received quite controversially in the west which it was like the wolf totem yeah wolf totem. Totem. it was yeah. it was it was it was called like fascist or something right yeah it was it was uh I think it came out like in early 2000s, I want to say. It might have been. 2004, 2004, yeah. yeah. And that was, yeah, it was sort of perceived as a as a fascist Chinese take on, on society. I don't know if you talked about this before I got started, but the... Um... The ketamine piece, the uh, the oh, no, we, yeah. we have not, we oh, have yeah. not, oh, yeah. Yeah. we haven't talked about that. Yeah, I forgot about it. Yes, I actually have a tab open about yeah. that, but I just forgot. And the other one's the white left one, but anyway, yeah, the ketamine and the, the return of the party state, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I remember mm. for quite it seemed like for quite a while around that you were tweeting um stuff about uh like um narcotics culture in in China and particularly you know around um. The border with Burma um, and Yunnan, um, and I was just I was just wondering kind of how that fitted into, or how you saw that fitting into your other range of interests. Yeah, sure. Um, with with that, it was um, well. Well, first of all, I mean, the first part of the story is that I was in China and I I uh, saw people using ketamine. Um, I would never admit to using it myself. 
but I, it was always something, something interesting to me of, of going into this club in, I think the first time I saw it was in, was in Nanjing and the 1912 club district and walking into a club and let's say this is 2006, I think, and just seeing a table loaded with white powder, unclear what it was and um, making friends with people sitting around that same table, seeing the, the police come in for their nightly inspection where they line up along, along one rail and look out onto the dance floor and then shuffle out again. And that, that, that moment always made me curious and always fascinated me, this, this disconnection between Chinese, I don't know, authoritarianism um, with this kind of freewheeling narcotic culture that, was, that was, seemed to be widely tolerated. And from that, um, I started writing um, a book, a book. It was uh, not really a book at all, but a, a text file written in notepad on, a, on an old computer. And the sort of the idea was to mimic the, the, the text files of the early 2000s, late 1990s internet, where somebody who was interested in a compound like dextromethorphan, which is, is found in cough syrup, Robitussin containing cough syrup, he would, he would write this, this anonymous user, or perhaps he, he would have a name, he would write this massive 50,000 word text all about how to extract dextromethorphan from cough syrup, which cough syrup are the best to use, um, what dosage is the best um, to achieve such and such an effects. So it was an attempt to mimic that, writing about ketamine um, in China in that kind of way, which I, I guess I intended to just post it anonymously somewhere. And uh, <clears throat> at a certain point in lacking any other topic to write about, I, I took, took up some parts of that text again to turn it into that uh, article about ketamine, which um, makes the argument that, well, well, looks at the disappearance of ketamine, that, that moment that I saw in 2006 where the tables were loaded down with white powder, you can't really see it anymore. And just looking at that, the taming of the chaos and the centralization of power and, and the political changes since 2011, and just looking at that through the appearance and then disappearance of of ketamine and you know as well i'm kind of interested in that in in how ketamine got into the country and how people conceived of their use of ketamine and that kind of thing so it it will hopefully in the future be um a larger book project that uh, encompasses you know some some ethnography and um, translation of various sources that wrote on it and a look at web culture and whatnot. But yeah, that that's it. Yeah, looking forward to that. Sounds uh, sounds like a great Yeah, book. that sounds very cool. And yeah. and I can't remember yeah. if it was, I remember seeing after you published the, the essay online, you also tweeted some stuff about like positive reactions you got from, um, you know, Chinese commentators or people online. And I don't know if they even like translated it into Chinese. Um, yeah, I think that was translated. It was one of those things. It might have even been on Guancha or something like that. I can't remember, but yeah, it was positively received. That's like that. That piece of writing is the closest thing I've ever written to, kind of out and out um, uh, apologia for for Chinese authoritarianism. That I will admit to that. It's it get it 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 gets very close to sort of a, a Chinese nationalist perspective. But mm. yeah. Yeah, um, maybe we just ask you, what are you working on right now? If you have anything to share or you want to share uh, either translations or writings or whatever you're doing or planning. Um, I'm not doing anything. Uh, I'm trying to finish that. Well, that academic book chapter on right. cybernetics is, is still mostly done, just editing and... 
currently doing translation of a memoir by Tsai Chong Da. He was a GQ editor. I translated his first, oh, oh, yeah, the, his first memoir. Is it Vessel? Vessel? Is it Vessel? Yeah, I did that one. Now yeah. he's got a new one out. So I'm going to do that. And that's about it. Well, sounds cool. I can't wait to read both of those, especially the cybernetics mm -hmm. chapter. Well, thanks so much for uh, this couple of hours. Uh, it was a lot of cool stuff that I hope our listeners will enjoy. Um, I had a blast, so I hope you also had a good time. Yeah. Um, I hope it's interesting. Oh, it yeah, will be, definitely. for sure. I hope. Oh, yeah.